1: and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning. Good afternoon. Now, I guess it is. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our Heritage.org website on all of these occasions. Uh, For our in-house guests, we would ask that last courtesy check that our mobile devices have been silenced. And, of course, for those watching online, you're welcome to send questions or comments at any time, simply emailing speaker at Heritage.org. And we'll, of course, post today's program on the Heritage homepage for everyone's future reference as well. Welcoming our guest and leading our program is Becky Norton Dunlop. Ms. Dunlop serves as our Ronald Reagan Distinguished Fellow. She advocates for Heritage's American conservative ethic, conservation ethic, advances energy and natural resources policy in general, and is an active board member for numerous public policy organizations and associations. She previously served Heritage as our Vice President for External Relations and most recently led our Restore America project. Prior to joining Heritage, she was a Secretary of Natural Resources for the Commonwealth of Virginia, serving in the cabinet of then-Governor George Allen. She's also served significant roles in the Reagan administration, Deputy Assistant to the President for Presidential Personnel, Special Assistant to the President and Director of the Office of Cabinet Affairs, Special Assistant to then-Attorney General Ed Meese, as well as working at the Department of Interior as Assistant Secretary for Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Please join me in welcoming Becky Norton Dunlop.
2: Thank you. Well, thank you, John. And on behalf of our President, Kay Coles-James, and the entire Heritage Foundation staff, I welcome those of you who have come today and those who are watching this on television or on the Internet. Bruce Chapman is one of our favorite guests. Part of the reason he's a favorite guest is because he's from the other side of the country, the yeah. other Washington. And uh, we always love to have people come from that Washington either to serve in an administration like the Reagan administration or to come here to the Heritage Foundation for various reasons, and Bruce has had many of those uh, reasons to visit us. He was an elected official uh, in Seattle and in Washington state. So he's gone through that experience, and then he served as an appointed uh, uh, member of the Reagan administration in the Department of Commerce, and then as an ambassador. And then to kind of wrap things up, serving in an elected office, serving in an appointed office, then you go home and you start a think tank, a research and education foundation so that you can help other people understand the issues our countries and our states and our communities face and uh, help them figure out their own way in the world and the principles that should guide them. Now he has written a great book, and I hope that uh, those of you who are with us today here uh, will get a copy of the book before you leave, and those who are watching on television, uh, you can probably get this on Amazon, if not at your local bookstore. It's a great uh, read, and I encourage you to get it. Uh, Bruce has written a book about politicians. Uh, That's something in Washington, D.C. that gets talked about a lot, and not too often in very positive terms. So we want to hear from Bruce Chapman today here at the Heritage Foundation and see what he has to say about politicians, the worst kind of people to run the government except for all the others. Bruce, welcome to Heritage.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
3: Thank you, friends. It's really nice to be at Heritage. And and I'm wearing a little badge here that says, all we are saying is give Meese a chance. So I, I want to salute my my old boss, uh, Ed Meese, uh, and somebody who was so close to President Reagan, often called his right-hand man, um, that uh, all of us look up to him. And when he came out to Seattle at the Discovery Institute uh, a few months ago, he uh Occasion and very nice crowd and a great, great experience. But several of the staff people who work for me were saying, um, "Bruce, you're running around. You're checking details that you normally don't check. You're, you're fussing. You're being a little anxious. Why are you doing this?" And I said, "Because my my boss is coming, <laughs> and I feel that way even today. And and, and with with great respect, D- Becky, of course, was a signal part of the Reagan administration personnel director all that kind of thing and we go back a long time too uh, she did not mention that I was on the White House staff, and that was a formative period of my life. Uh, you live intensely uh, in those years you I was talking to um, a woman who's a reporter on the White House staff now, and she said that that uh, that it's like being on vacation where everything is intense, that much you live much more intensely than you do in your normal life. and so that after you've been there a couple of years, you feel like you've been there 10 years. And that's I don't know Ed, you were there a lot longer than that, so uh, you had a great experience. Now, my topic today is politicians. People don't write about politicians. they write about pol- a politician, this politician, that politician, or they write about uh, particular campaigns or what have you. My topic is the people themselves. What is it? What motivates them? How do they do it? Why do they do it? How should we regard it and i 'm looking at a crowd here today that includes a lot of young people. so honestly, the most important reason to read this book and to encourage others to read it is is that it is a conversation with young people about why they ought to go into politics my If my hero is the unlikely politician, my my nemesis is the middleman or middlewoman in our political life. That's all the people, and I'm afraid it includes people like me in think tanks and you in think tanks, uh, that are not running for office, not supporting someone to run for office, but who are in the uh, journalism field, in the um, and other kinds of media, including social media, who are in uh, the bureaucracy for certain, who are in uh, the various reform groups that never seem to stop reforming. They never run out of an agenda. Uh, you can ask yourself, why don't they ever run out of an agenda? Why is there's always something more that needs to be reformed? Answer is simple. There are jobs connected with it. You've got to keep Having something wrong so that you can keep agitating for new reform legislation. That's been going on now for about 40, 45 years. So I, I think that it's a, an important thing to recognize that there are people who want the power of the politician and the power of the elected official has been diminishing. The power of the elected official's most important ally, the political parties, has been uh, diminishing, has been curtailed, regulated. People have felt that we needed to do something that Aristotle warned against, trying to make the leader good rather than trying to find good people to be leaders. The idea that the government, by its regulations and laws, can make people good is a chimera, whereas finding people of high character to serve that's a calling for all of us, as citizens as well as a potential candidates. So the subtitle of my book, "The The Worst Kind of People to Run the Government," except for all the others, definitely means that uh, that we should be under, that we should understand that the people who are elected to public office or run for public office are flawed. They're human. They're just like everybody else. No better, no worse. Sometimes I think they actually are better because they're they're under a microscope. After all, they they, they do need to behave a little better. You might not know it from uh, what the scandals are that you see in, in the paper, but they but they are, and they are the only people who are uh, removable by the public. Of all the other that I talked about, the bureaucrats, the journalists, the um, Reform groups, other special interests—none of those people can be reformed by the, uh, removed by the, uh, by the public. There are 511,000 elected officials in this country. That's quite a number, and according to the Census Bureau, that's the number. And that doesn't include all the people who used to serve in Congress or state legislatures or water control districts or school boards or whatever across the 87,000 independent uh, boards and commissions and legislatures of this country. And from a very early stage, we are trained to take part in politics, to elect one another. I started out, I remember, in grade school, uh, very early that we had to put our heads down on the table and vote for whoever should be classroom monitor you know, or the hall monitor, and uh, it was a very big, big election. I wanted to be it. Of course, I was very ambitious at an early age. And uh, another boy offered that if I put his name in, he'd put mine in because you never wanted to be uh, apparently self-seeking. And I remember a little girl putting uh, being proposed for it, and she was. Uh, she said, "I recline the nomination," <laughs> and uh, of course. She was not allowed to recline it, and, uh, and as a result, uh, she was elected. Now, this is a standard thing in, in politics, is that the person who doesn't want to run is often the one that they want. In other words, people love to draft a candidate. But we find that despite the importance of this and the way we almost automatically go about electing people over and over again, and it's, built, I believe, built into our DNA as Americans, uh, we're suspicious of politics. I'm politicians, and we always have been. Uh, George Washington spoke of mere politicians. Well, guess what? George Washington, as my book says, was quite a politician, a very good politician. Uh, you, don't, you, you have to read about it, but he uh, hardly ever said anything in the Continental Congress. But behind the scenes, he was crafting deals with this Section of the country and that section of the country and seeing if they couldn't find compromises. He went all, he went to all the social events. He was a party animal. Uh, you wouldn't believe that, but he was very chatty and fun with people and danced with all the ladies in those days and they did the, the sort of thing that, that, that would inculcate a sense of obligation, a sense of, of trust. He was the only person in his generation who traveled over most of what were then the 13 colonies of the United States, so he knew most of the country as uh, as nobody else did. He was a good politician, uh, but it becomes the politician, as I said, to somehow disguise his version as, and Willis disguising his talents that what his what he does, what his art is. So, uh, I want to say that even though a number of people have asked whether this country is in decline, I am not a pessimist. I'm an optimist. However, we have some serious problems. Let's we'll start with the fact that the public themselves do not understand what's going on. We have uh, a poll, a survey monkey poll that we commissioned, which asked, which groups in the society do you think have too much power, which have not enough power? And people said that they thought that, uh, that non-government organizations had too much power. Only 32% thought that uh, there was something like 58% thought the media had too much power. About the same said the, said that of of, of bureaucrats, uh, <laughs> but 72% thought that po- politicians and elected officials had too much. Uh, that the term was elected officials have too much power. And and when asked who has too little power, they believed that the that all these groups are. Uh, relatively median numbers, but the public has too little power, 82%. I'll put that together. You're you're a voter, and you think that you have too little power, and the people you elect have too much power. Well, you're not thinking straight because these are the only people, as I said, that you can actually uh, remove. So it's important to educate people on what is and is not uh, uh, their responsibility and their opportunity. And I believe that this starts in, in the absence of the teaching of civics in our schools. When, when I was young, we all had to take civics. And in fact, uh, we had people come from the local courts to show us what they did, we were actually taken down to a court. We were, we had the police superintendent come in, the police chief come in, we had the local state representative come. They were happy to do it. And so there was a certain amount of respect for these positions because you, you knew what they were. Some of it was a little bit wooden, a little bit dull. We had uh, little organization charts that said how a bill becomes a law, which should have been called how a bill is supposed to become a law but doesn't. Because they don't it doesn't really reflect these organizational charts don't really reflect what goes on. My book describes a little bit of what really goes on uh, in legislating, but but that, that sort of teaching had its merit. People understood the three branches of government. They understood how uh, the uh, how many legislators they have for how many senators they have for a state or how many. Uh, people there are on their city council or whatever. That is absent today. People literally, um, I'm sorry to say, know more about, literally, know more about the Kardashians than they know about whoever their U.S. senator is. And this is, of course, a cause not for confidence in government or affection for government or trust in government and the people in it. It is a cause for cynicism and skepticism, Undo cynicism. And I, I say in the book that the highest form, that the strongest form of, of uh, naivete in politics is cynicism. Skepticism is terrific. It's warranted. Uh, but cynicism is, if you think about it, a form of naivete. To think, think the worst about your own country and about the system of representative government that we were given by the American founders is unrealistic. It's untrue. What a perverse thing has happened in our country. The first civilization that I can think of where the people are trained to dislike their form of government. And it's totally defeating, -defeating, self-defeating, self-loathing. So, I put a lot of the blame today for uh, public demoralization on the situation of our, of, of our schools and, a, and the failure to teach, to teach civics. Another thing I think that's contributing to our problems is that we have a, a business community that about 10, 20 years ago decided that the country was moving left and they needed to move left with it. We've always had the situation that the uh, people in the labor unions wanted more government and more controls, more regulations and so forth. But it, but when the business community decided to opt into that worldview, I believe for opportunistic reasons, then real damage was done. And I, we've seen that uh, in my hometown of Seattle recently because for over the years, it seemed like it was becoming a one-party city and, and state. And people in the business community would hire uh, young folks to be their public relations officer or political officer or whatever, external affairs person, whatever the euphemism they came up with, Would they'd hire someone from the left. And so it became a cycle. However, along came a new development, which was that the left is being replaced by the far left. And Ronald Reagan used to say that sometimes the right hand doesn't know what the far right hand is doing. Uh, Well, sometimes today, the left hand doesn't know what the far left hand is doing, and not just in Seattle, but in many other parts of of the country. And so they add tax on tax on tax on tax on seriously running people out of their homes uh, with heavy taxes, and when they when they can't c- think of a new way to tax the middle class, they tax the poor with soda taxes and things like that, all in the name of environment and what have you. Then they made a mistake recently. They uh, decided to use Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. I think I hope you all know of this book, uh, Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. Uh, but it has a number of uh, pieces of advice for how to uh, radicalize a population, and one of them is to identify your enemy and personalize him or her. So they decided in Seattle that they put a new tax on jobs to pay for homelessness. And they said, We're going to pay for homelessness by taxing jobs, and, and we're going to start with Amazon because Amazon's the biggest, now the biggest. Uh, Employer in the city with about forty-five or fifty thousand people. Many of them new to the city. I would say mon- many of these techies are probably inclined to vote left. They probably voted for Bernie in the in the last in the last election. But well, we have a few people on our city council who are identified with the the um, Socialist Alternative Party, which is a Trotskyite party. And if you've studied your Russian Revolution, you know about the Trotskyites and the. Stalinists. And as I said, the difference between the Stalinists and the Trotskyites is that the Stalinists will shoot you and the Trotskyites will only shout you down. So this is a a, a, a kind of a motif for these folks to pass a tax on the rich by taxing jobs. And then they said, this is an Amazon tax and it's, and it's aimed at Jeff Bezos. And so they had personalized it. Uh and whack, all of a sudden the business community said, whoa, wait a minute. We're the bad guys now? We're the employers are the bad guys, as employers we're the bad guys? And and Amazon's the problems? All of a sudden forty-five thousand Amazon employees thought start started thinking. Maybe maybe we're on the wrong side of this. Maybe the reason our rents keep going up is not because we have capitalist landlords that are trying to put pressure on us, but because the city council keeps passing new taxes that raise the, the property taxes of the landlord, who has to pass that on right to us? So I think there's some change taking place. Now, that's only in one city. It, it led to an outcry, finally, that caused a lot of people, including people who are good, solid liberals, uh, to say no, I'm not with this. This is, this is completely out of hand, and I hope that that might happen nationally. It needs to. Businesses need to understand that they are tied to the free market, and that they should not temporize and appease uh, people trying to move farther and farther to the left. And I so, so I think that if that if we can get that turnaround, we might have a greater balance in our political. Elections and political process—it's endless—and and and have some genuine exchange and not just uh, the kind of battering we get back and forth today. And so then I do think that that's the um, that that's some of the goods some of the good things that are happening. I mentioned civics in the state of Washington. One of the people who's part of our organization, Discovery Institute, uh, and we have something called the. Chapman fellows in citizen leadership. In fact, Rich LaVoy, I see, is, is a graduate of that, out, uh, is here today and has been, been, been here at Heritage. We love sharing our folks with you and vice versa. Uh, but uh, one of them, one of the early people involved was a man named Hans Seiger, who I think also has been at Heritage in his time. He's now a state senator from uh, Puyallup, Washington, and a very important part of the education Uh, committee in Olympia. And he sponsored a bill this past year on civics to reinstate civics as an obligation, not optional, for an obligation for all students graduating from high school. And furthermore, that the test at the end of this would be a citizenship test, the same citizenship test that you have to take if you're an immigrant. So if you're an immigrant, from wherever you come here and you go through the process, you know there are two senators and and how many state rep- how many representatives there are in Congress and so forth. You know all this. You know about the branches of government, the balance of powers, all that. You've learned all of that. And now, under this new law, if they enforce it and and teach it properly, uh, students in our state will know. And I believe it will lead lead to the only thing that turns around. Uh, voter participation, and that's knowledge. Knowledge comes from, participation comes from knowledge. It does not come from protest demonstrations or getting excited. Again, we took another poll and we asked people who were under 30 uh, whether in the last two years they had participated in a protest demonstration. And it was I think it was like 20%, you know, 20, 25%. How many of you have taken part in a political campaign? It was about 10%. Then we asked, which is more effective? Well, they all think protest demonstrations are better for getting things done than actually getting involved with the decision makers. I know from my own experience in local government, state government, and the national government, and being in international affairs, it's far more important to help people get elected to office for. And the best thing is if you're in office, you actually get to make part of the decision. And and therefore, this is a strange idea, born of television, I think, and and social media, that protest demonstrations are, are the way to go. So the fact that we're going to have some places, at least, where we, we teach civics is, uh, is a good sign. I have uh, three areas that I recommend... For um, reform of the reforms, I've, I've talked about. I've talked. I speak critically of the reform movement and what happened to it. Uh, as a as a member of the um, as a secretary of state for the state of Washington and chief elections officer, I you know I really looked at all of, of these uh, issues, and I came to the conclusion that the reform movement, as I said, never runs out of never runs out of things to do because it's a, in their self interest to, to keep, keep going. But, but they also not only oppose individual politicians unfairly, I can give you examples of that, but they hurt political parties. They, for whatever reason, want to restrain political parties. But political parties have an immensely beneficial uh, effect upon politics There are many ways that happens. They used to pick the candidates. In some states, they still pick the candidates. But there are laws in certain states now that they're not even, they're not allowed to help candidates before a primary or to even help a candidate financially after a primary. This is insane. It's putting everything uh, backwards. So we need to revive political parties and give them more of a say. If you have a political party, You can address some of the problems that our country is facing right now. I mean, you just read the papers or look on the news or or on social media and what do you see? Polarization. You see people split far on one side, far on the other side and they're very emotional and they're nasty about it. Well, what do political parties do? Well, political parties are necessarily, national political parties are an agglomeration of interests and points of view. So you have people on the left, they can't get too far to the left. If you have people on the right, they can't get too far to the right. And they can't get too far out. Parties help bring people together. Necessarily. You're trying to win an election. You've got to bring all kinds of folks. And in this diverse country, you've got to bring all kinds of folks together. So political purposes, uh, parties perform that service. Why is it that it's so hard to get people to reach across the aisle these days? Uh, Most of us, even the most conservative have a few little things on the left that we agree with. A, a prison reform would be a good example right now uh, of, of, a, of a subject where you can get people on both sides to talk to each other. I think the immigration issue, if you really would discuss it uh, in the open, would be one where you could get some uh, cross-pile cooperation. But the way our politics and our media and our social media work is to drive people apart and not let them cooperate. So number one for me is bringing back the political parties. Another one is to democratize campaign finance. There's a wonderful organization here in town called the Institute for Free Speech, and it campaigns for just this, democratizing the financing of our elections. Because right now we get more and more effort to Restrain funding, and even with Citizens United, uh, the, the free speech idea has has not really taken hold the way it should. I'll tell you I'm, what I'm particularly concerned about. I'm concerned that the people on the far left, some of them are very well organized and funded, very well funded. This is the irony. Will go into voter. Uh, and find out who gave $25 to a political referendum or a campaign and that someone they consider beyond the pale and then go after that person and boycott their business or boycott them, make them uncomfortable in their place of work uh, so that people are afraid to give money. Now, anytime people are afraid to contribute to a political candidate, because of social uh, ostracism, you've got a problem in a democracy. It's just completely wrong, and so that's why I say, let's democratize a campaign of finance. And then I would say the third thing that's lacking so so greatly right now is debate. The American founders sat in Philadelphia and debated. They debated what kind of... Constitution, they debated all kinds of things. Out of those debates came our system of government, which has held up for 200 and, what, 30 years. In the Lincoln-Douglas debates, thousands of people would go to towns like the one near I grew up, Galesburg, Illinois. Thousands, thousands of people would go and they'd stand. Some would sit, but many would stand for hours listening to an intelligent Debate between two smart, in this case two smart men, Lincoln and Douglas, on slavery and the and the future of the Union. And then they voted. These people, by the way, did not have college degrees by and large. They were not particularly well educated, but they followed seriously what was going on. Someone said to me the other day, "Well, they didn't have much, you know, to entertain them otherwise." that this was uh, they didn't have wonderful social media and television and so on, so this was a great entertainment for them. Okay, I'll give you that. But at the same time, they did pay attention. And you won't get those crowds to pay attention to a debate now. They will pay attention to people yelling at each other or uh, doing sound bites. And we get what passes for debates every four years. We get these presidential debates. We had 16 Republican candidates on the stage, Nobody had more than a few seconds to speak in in 2016. And when it finally narrowed down a little bit and they started to get into real issues like immigration, I remember hearing Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz talking about the intricacies of the lottery, the the immigration lottery, and and the moderator interrupting them, stopping them and saying, you're getting into the weeds. We don't want to get into the weeds. And I'm sitting at home saying, oh, please, let's get into the weeds. I would like to know more about these bills and what the strong points are on both sides. The public needs to be informed of this. So I I do not have a panacea. I don't have a set way to do this. But I would say that it would be very healthy if we went back to uh, some of the ideas that we had when public television was educational television and not... The BBC uh, in disguise, uh, showing us wonderful <laughs> murder mysteries, which my wife and I actually like. Uh, but but it did do lots of public service things, like hold debates. Uh, public radio, though, I have a good friend here in Washington D.C. who helped create public radio. He's rather discouraged by what has happened to public, uh, national public radio. But the original idea was to have the public be able to listen to serious discussion of issues. We don't have it and there's a, a new program with I, it's Margaret Hoover, I think is her name that she's to try to do with the, the old Buckley firing line. Uh, that's a very good thing, but I would but nothing would please me more than to see say uh, climate science debated or immigration debated or any number of other issues uh, debated because I think fr- frankly from, from my point of view, my, the kinds of things I believe in, I think, would hold up very well once they were actually understood by the public. And I think the public would benefit from hearing, from hearing both sides, and then making up their own minds without all the the noise, without all the racket, without all the name calling and the threats. So, so we get this, frankly. Uh, now, maybe in media, we should be getting it in Congress. It's very hard for Congress to have a debate now because the people involved are posing for the television and for the social media. They're trying to position themselves politically for the next election and to find positions that will embarrass the other side instead of to illuminate an issue. Committee hearings that are supposed to be a committee, hear- yes, committee hearings, which are supposed to be where the legislators, the congressmen learn. Have just become showpieces. You you just show up to have your you know have it noted that you were there, and uh, and disappear. This is wrong. I remember uh, Tom Curtis of of uh, Missouri was a congressman way back when. I don't know. Do you remember Tom Curtis? Yeah. And he he was very sober, serious legislator, and he bemoaned even then that we were getting away from it. And you know why? Because that was the age we introduced uh, television into these, into these rooms that people started posing uh, rather than, than trying to learn and legislate and deliberate. These are supposed to be deliberative bodies. You're supposed to be able to ask, ask a stupid question, ask a question you don't know the answer to, inform yourself, learn, try to probe, pull the other person out, and, and maybe, maybe occasionally say, you know, I think you've got a good point. I'm persuaded on that point. Let's see, see what we could do to collaborate. I don't know how to force that. I don't think you can force that kind of debate, but at least the public should have the debate. And, and I hope that maybe some of our think tanks can help facilitate. that. Even if we don't agree with the other side, to try to bring bring people together. And I guess my last point is that, that uh, this book is written to encourage all the people who are observers and middlemen and middle women and like ourselves, to uh, facilitate the improvement of the connection between the voter, the sovereign people of the United States, and their representatives, the peop- the kind of person that the American founders intended to be in charge of the government. They never thought they were wonderful. They knew better. They knew we were clay. They knew that we were all fallen. Uh, but they knew that, that because we could spread power and have it a- Directly responsible through representatives to the people, but the people would remain sovereign. If we want the people to remain sovereign, we have to support politicians. So I would urge you all to say a kind word for your politicians. <laughs> Do more than that. Consider becoming one of them. And uh, meanwhile, buy the book of the same title. Thank you very much. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much, Bruce. We have uh, time for questions. We want to give people a chance to ask questions. We have a microphone. If you have a question, please raise your hand and wait for our uh, man with the mic to show up so you can introduce yourself to Bruce and ask your question. Uh, Bruce, I'm going to start off with a question. Um, Politicians now who are elected members of Congress used to have a constituency of about 650,000 people. Now they have many, many, many more. One of the ideas that's gone through my mind is, why don't we return to 650,000 people for every member of Congress? Tell us what you think about the growing population and how it might affect the people that uh, arguably represent it here. Uh, does it make lobbyists in Washington more powerful? And is that a good thing? Talk to us a little bit about that, and then think of your questions so that Andrew can come
3: with the mic to you. As usual, Becky and I think alike on on many subjects. Uh, I've I almost put that in my my book. It is possible. There's no no reason why we can't increase the number of of members of Congress, uh, and what it, well, it has been done. And um, after you think about the fact that we only had three million people or so. Uh, in the early days of the Republic, and, and uh, I don't remember what the number was in the House, but it's grown. And uh, it's actually up around 850,000 now. So it would be possible, like Parliament in the UK, to have uh, more members of the House than they could sit in the House chamber. Uh, the seating in the House chamber should not be the decision, the, the the reason for the number. So yes, you could get a smaller number, and I, I think that would be... A- talk about a debating topic, that would be a great one to have and explore the benefits and liabilities of doing that. I thought as you were asking that question, though, Becky, about something else, and that is that the way we run our campaigns now is almost guaranteed to make it hard for members of Congress to be truly in touch with the issues on one hand and with their constituencies on the other. Uh, they have to fly back to their districts every week, it seems. This is very hard on people and on families especially. So when people are thinking about whether they want to come to Washington, do they put their family in the in the, uh, home district or do they put their family in Washington, D.C.? And, of course, the family has something to say about that. People make great sacrifices as a result, maybe too much. In the old days, they would come to Washington they would stay here for less time because the government was smaller and had less to do. But then they would go home. So they really did have two lives. They were they were, fraternizing with the people in their district, not just appearing, at, at meetings and then, you know, for a drop by a DB as it's called in Washington, but and then going away. But they actually could schmooze with people and, and get to know their their views. So I I feel that that. uh the length of our campaigns, the fact that we have permanent campaigns now, that we're campaigning all the time, is a great uh, damage to uh, our representative form of government. And I have some suggestions in my book about that, how to limit the length of campaigns. We, the presidential campaign essentially starts just before the midterm elections. So this next midterm election, which is coming up months from now, you're going to start hearing uh, before before November, you'll start hearing about who the pr- prospective candidates are for uh, the Democratic nomination. They will start organizing quietly, and there'll be a two-year campaign. We used to limit it. It used to be that the presidential primaries were in the early spring, um, and then uh, they were over in June. June was, was California. Now, uh, now it goes on and on and on and on. And it goes. It, 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 the, the Easter Bunny is being chased uh, uh, a year and a half before uh, uh, before the election. Santa Claus has to compete with active campaigns the year before an election campaign. This is wrong, and one of the reasons people get tired of politics and bomb, they feel bombarded by politics is that uh, they get it too, they get too much of it. So I feel that the, one of the reforms. Uh, I'm interested in in that reform that you talked about, but I'm also interested in shortening campaigns, uh, democratizing and democratizing the political uh, um, funding of campaigns to try to help people uh, uh, stay closer to their constituents and let the constituents stay closer to their uh, representatives.
2: Okay, right here in the front row, if you'll stand up and introduce yourself to uh, our guests.
0: His name is Dave Onsbach, American citizen and taxpayer. So I'm just thinking about uh, what, what role do you think the uh, uh, initiative and referendum at the national level could uh, play in, in, in improving,
3: you know, uh, democratic discourse and faith in, in, in government. This, this may disappoint you, sir, but I think that the initiative and referendum recall process, which was part of the progressive era, hundred and 10 years ago, 100 years ago, uh, actually had some good points, but it also had some bad points. I don't think I would get rid of the process uh, where it exists, for example, in California and Washington State some, some other places. But I think that it leads us to believe that the public as a whole should be legislating on everything. And I will tell you, it's gone completely wacky where it, it where it exists. In California in this last election, I think in the city of San Francisco, they not only had the presidential campaign and all the people and judges that you've never heard of that you're supposed to vote on and so on, all, all the way down the ballot, uh, but they also had 35 initiatives and a referendum that they had to vote on. They had to vote on some things. with the, They had to vote on conditions in the pornography business. I mean, can you imagine voting on that? And, of course, maybe in San Francisco. But anyway... Uh, they, in our state, we had to vote on whether you could catch fish with a purse seine net. And I had to look up in the dictionary to find out what a purse seine net is. Now, how was I qualified as a citizen? Why would I be asked as a citizen to take that kind of interest in uh, picayune and arcane subjects? They're not picayune to the people involved. In fact, you're letting the public as, who, don't, who are ignorant on the subject you're forcing them to vote on something that's vital to somebody else's economic livelihood. So, I, And it has this perverse effect that if you're asked to vote about everything, local, state, national, county, you know, school board, all these different things, it actually is intimidating. And people feel like they've been put in school and given a test, a really hard test, and they probably can't pass it. And I think that contributes to a decline in... uh Voting participation and interest—it makes it turns people off. They feel they're not up to it, uh, and it's a bad thing. I'll say one other thing: the, there's a movement on the left for what they call direct democracy, and which is to take this idea and carry it forward, where so everything is sort of in the public realm. Well, it's a Marxist idea; it's a terrible idea, because when when everything when everything's uh, Legislated on by everybody, you don't get serious deliberation. You can't have it. What you get is mobs, and you get a mob psychology. We've seen it constantly in history, with French Revolution, Russian Revolution. Power to the people! Oh, we have a democracy of the people! Oh, yes, of course you do. And uh, and and real democracy is much more fine grained So I so I, I I'm not opposed to keeping the referendum recall, but I think. That ought to be curtailed in some degree. And that we ought again, let people deliberate.
2: Okay, yes, sir, right here, and then we'll come back to you. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, Bruce, thanks for that great uh, presentation. I'm Eagles Milbergs, former Washingtonian, the other Washington. Uh, I wanted you to drill in a little to the relationship between the media and the politician. You uh, seem to emphasize that. Is it the politician that's uh, uh, trying to leverage the media, or has figured out how to leverage the media? We certainly have a president who seems to understand social media. Or is it the fact that we have a, a, a business model in the media that, that, that exacerbates some of these problems that you're talking about? And I guess what's related to that is, do you see any evidence that the public wants to consume uh, a debate on uh, serious issues? Uh, for me, I, I find it very hard to see that the public is eager for that, but maybe you're aware of some evidence that uh, people really want something like that <laughs> well i will tell you if you ask people in a questionnaire they do do want it but do they really want it probably not uh but look um, it doesn't take a lot of people who paying attention to start to change public opinion once informed once people inform themselves they start to say you know i listened to a debate on this and it changed my mind. I got a different perspective. And then their neighbor or friends at work, whatever, say, oh, well, you know, that's interesting. Tell us about it. So you start, even with a small group, a ginger group, you can make make a big difference. Also rem- reminded of what George Bernard Shaw said about, this is a paraphrase. He said, if you if you don't get what you want, you will come to want what you get. And so if you, if you don't get serious discussion of public issues, what you get is a Denigration of the process, and you will and down to the lowest common denominator, which turns out to be shouting at one another, insults. Then that's what you're going to get, because and you'll come to want that. There's a certain appetite for it. I mean, all you have to do is look at the the papers. The, the New York Times is essentially a paper for people who want to read 17 to 20 articles on Donald Trump every day. I mean, seriously, is that what what the news is all all Donald Trump 24/7 why is that well i think they feel that there are readers who want that and that they want it just nonstop but in fact it's a distortion of where the authority is in our government and, and what the concerns are that sh- should affect all of us so uh, i i think media the the media are a different class than they are than they were say 50 years ago they're different kinds of people. They're much more educated people than than we've had before. The reporters are, and the other journalists. <clears throat> um, they're, but they're less in touch with the ordinary people, and they they know that. I mean, some of them know that. It's been it's been commented on for, for a generation or so that uh, that ordinary people uh, cannot become reporters anymore. Uh, you have they they do the same thing they do in corporations. They Check credentials, and so no wonder they're out of touch. But uh, I, so I'm in favor of more more media uh, rather than 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 less.
2: Okay, the gentleman in the
1: uh, back who seems to know Bruce well. Well, good to see you again, Bruce. Oh, uh, Richard Lavoie and uh, you know former Chapman fellow at the Discovery Institute and uh, uh, speaking of media work for the Laura Ingram Show. But Bruce, I. Um, Wanted to uh, ask about the uh, proliferation of, of reform groups. Uh, you know how uh, they they may have been used as as a cudgels for politicians during uh, the you know the elections. I like to uh, hear more about that as uh, you know reform ber- reform groups being weaponized in that sense.
3: I was a big reformer in my youth, and uh, I think some of the things I supported, uh, uh, campaign finance reporting was a good was a good idea. Open meeting laws up to a point or a good idea idea, but I got elected Secretary of State, Chief Elections Officer, and I supported uh, various ethics legislation and so forth, and then it dawned on me, because I started to see how this was on was being used in political campaigns, it dawned on me that political candidates were using ethics as a cudgel, as a weapon against their opponents, and that you could do it very cleverly, very Machiavellian, and uh, you could, for example, Uh, I use a couple examples in my book. You wait till your incumbent opponent is uh, in the final election in September, and you issue a uh, attack on him, and and you send it to the Public Disclosure Commission, or the Ethics Commission in your state, or or the Federal Ethics Commission, or the House Ethics Committee. This is one of the worst places uh, here in Washington, D.C. You say, my opponent has violated the campaign law by something. Uh, I have, I use an ex- old example of Mike Pence. Mike, Vice President Mike Pence, when he was a candidate for, uh, for the House, the U.S. House in, uh, Indiana, had his mother, or mother-in-law, I can't remember which, doing the books, and she made a couple of typographical mistakes. She left off an address for somebody who'd given money or something like that. So the opponent sends this in. Well, this is a great way to bludgeon your opponent, because there's a news story that says, Pence charged with ethics violation. And the ethics commission said that they will take this seriously, et cetera, et cetera. And then, from then on, the can other candidate can go around saying, "There's my opponent, the incumbent, has is ethically challenged, and there's now an ethics investigation of him going on in the ethics committee." As far as the public concerned, well, where there's smoke, there's fire, right? But as uh, Congressman Petry of Wisconsin said. Uh, in a similar circumstance in Washington DC, where there's smoke, there's often a smoke machine. Mm -hmm. And, and that's what we, that's what we uh, have all too often in the ethics field. So I have certain suggestions for that. Uh, one is to force these committees to react faster. It's simply inexplicable that elected officials would hire bureaucrats, and I don't mean anything against them, but, uh, to, to work in these committees and they take their time. No, this is a matter of some urgency, particularly when you're in an election campaign. You need to know, uh, you need to get an outcome from it. And you need it, and you also need a de minimis standard that below this standard you just don't bother people. You know, like the, what like what happened to Pence. Innocent mistakes uh, like that need to happen. I also think that we need to do the same with the confirmation process. Uh, for presidential appointees, we've had the slowest process. <laughs> Becky and, and Ed were both involved in the, the recent one. We've had the slowest process of confirmation ever, and I didn't think it could be much slower than it was uh, when I when I went through it in the in the uh, Reagan administration, and and when I helped uh, Ed when, in, with his marathon getting through the confirmation process. One of the things they could do is to stop the FBI from going around and collecting data on people, uh, which is raw data, unconfirmed, and they ask everybody that you know uh, about you, including people that might not like you, and they will, they will report rumors. I heard that he's involved in a land deal and such and such and such and such. Well, that gets reported. And guess what? That data gets sent to the Senate, the U.S. Senate, and people in the other party can read that. And they're looking for something that they can get you on, right? Or to stop the nomination. There'll be a feather in their cap that they stop some nomination based on an ethical concern. This ethical concern is nothing more than somebody who doesn't like you spreading a rumor. It should be reported. First of all, it should be it should be reported as what it is, uh, an a unverified FBI report on background information unverified put it right in the title of it so that so that the public can't see it misrepresented A reporter would be totally irresponsible it's according to unverified data all right or un- data unverified reports I'm talking about stuff that's leaked of course it's leaked all the time that leaking is illegal but they get it, they, they tend to get away with that but let's let's describe it as it really is I so I think that these ethics charges, have been, have been taken too high a level and they have been used to punish people unfairly, uh, innocent people unfairly. And it's also very discouraging for people trying to run for office or serve
4: in office.
2: Okay, we have another question here. We'll go for a few more minutes.
4: Thank you. Uh, my name is Mitsuo Nakai, uh, Japan native, U.S. citizen. A um, couple of things. Uh, the, the length of uh, uh, a campaign for the election it's it 's almost like a two years minimum here in this country, but if you look at the other countries it, it, campaign is is done election is done within uh four or five months, including japan and uh, so my question is is it because of a uh, Fundraising, uh, type of thing. This country is, uh, a bottom-up with the people, uh, country, which is what I like. But that's, that's almost like a too long, two years minimum. Uh, that's number one. Number two, it does, uh, I became a citizen in 1986. Uh, it seems like uh, getting nastier and nastier. I, I, th- I think you mentioned it a little bit. Uh, cutthroat or, backstabbing, whatever you call it. But I don't remember uh, a President Reagan being nasty in his campaign, but now it's almost like real nasty. So maybe you can comment on that one too. You've
3: got a, a couple of issues there. Uh, one is the quality of our discourse uh, publicly. And yes, of course, it's declined and it's, it's sad. And um, And yes, it does... It does, import, it does matter how people in a powerful positions uh, comport themselves. Uh, the first question you asked is about the length of campaigns, and that is something else that I think we should be thinking about changing. Uh, if you go to Canada or the U.K., they call an election in a parliamentary system, and six weeks later they have a campaign. Now, they know what there's going to be one. The party in power knows they're going to call it the... Opposition has been prepared for it, but then they go, they just go all out for six weeks or more. Not, not many more. You said six months. It's actually more like six weeks. We've had presidential races here, in this last one for example, in the midst of which countries had two elections while well, we were having one. And because they had quick turnover in their parliamentary system. But we ought to be able to shorten this. Now how can you do it? It's really hard. I don't, again, I don't, I don't want the government issuing mandates. But one thing they could do, and and what I recommend in part of democratizing uh, campaign finance, is to give people a tax deduction for campaign contributions. So to broaden the base of campaign contributions and keep keep the government out of it. Government doesn't give the money away, uh, but but the government allows you to uh, contribute and get get some credit uh, for that. but then in, in return for that, the, the parties have to control the length of their primary season and confine it and shorten it so that we're not just beset with these two-year campaigns. If you're campaigning all the time, you never really get to govern. You, you're, they're gov- you're, out, you're always in campaign mode, which is not a healthy place to be. So I recommend short, shortening campaigns. I think we could... We could put our heads together and come up with some other ideas on how to to do that.
2: Okay. I have uh, two final questions for you, Bruce. And then I'm going to ask Ed Meese. Just stay right where you are, Ed. We'll bring the mic to you. If he'd like to make a few final comments since he's known you so long and so well, and you're honoring him today with that historic badge. (laughs) So here are my final two questions. One, you talked about NPR which we all pay for, and it only presents one side of the debate. Is there a way, would you argue, a big idea would be to require NPR to present at least two sides of the debate, kind of a point-counterpoint? And the second question is, you were director of the census. Should the census, when the census is done, and the congressional districts are made up. Should the should the congressional district be established on the basis of citizens of the United States or people who occupy the space? Okay, there you go. And then we'll take the mic. to Edney.
3: Nothing but easy questions from <laughs> Becky. Uh, let's take uh, the the question of NPR. Um, I I don't have a simple solu- solution because. Uh, Republicans uh, have been discouraged for a long time by NPR and try to cut their budget, and it's just amazing. They have all these fundraisers going on all the time, and they have a wide group of people who listen to these programs. and And um, yes, it's discouraging. You can put you can have hearings on the subject. They don't mind hearings. They 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 have people employed to go to hearings like that. That's what they do. They eat eat that for lunch, but. Uh, What what you would have to have is you'd have to have a president and really a super majority almost in Congress in order to stop funding NPR, which I I think they've got enough funding now. They got, what was it, $25 million from the Joan Crock Foundation. I mean, whoa, uh, that's pretty good. Uh, They have had lots of other uh, funding opportunities. Should we create another one? Should we create a? take the money away from them and create a bipartisan uh, public radio network where both parties would have equal representation and they would therefore serve as a kind of governing board to check on the fairness of, of the uh, content. I don't know. I, it, that has problems too. Uh, maybe we're just creating a new problem um, but uh, it's also a little unfair to people who are outside the two political parties. Uh, I, I'd like to consider that. Um, the other thing is we could have a very generous uh, billionaire somewhere uh, help create a network that is fair, which would be wonderful. If you really could tell, if you could really establish uh, the idea of a of a fair-minded, bipartisan uh, network, uh that was independent of government that would be the optimal thing all we need is somebody who st- who doesn't have dreams of doing bizarre things like this guy Tom Steyer who wants to impeach the president spending millions of dollars doing that or bloomberg spending 80 million dollars to influence congressional rights. somebody who would say let's let's really have the public informed we, we just need a couple billionaires that's all we need and, and the other question was about the citizenship. Oh, you, you just, you, again, it's never really a really tough question. I've avoided people on that question, except that I got a call from the Secretary of of Commerce um, uh, a couple months ago asking me, as a, as a former director of the census, what I thought about that. And I said I thought it was a good idea to ask the, the citizenship question. That's the question for the 2020 census. Uh, it was asked um, in previous... Generations. I think the last time it was asked formally was in the decennial census, was 1960. But then it's asked in surveys all the time. I can't see why it should be objectionable. It is objectionable, and and the reason it's objectionable to some people is that they think that illegal immigrants will be intimidated, maybe other immigrants will be intimidated and afraid to answer the the questionnaire at all. And as a as a result, there'll be an undercount. Uh, a substantial undercount. Well, there may be, but on the other hand, uh, having been there, I can tell you that there are wheels ways to deal with an undercount. You have uh, you have records of Department um, of Motor Vehicles. You have uh, utility bills. You have all kinds of ways to find out where people. You do now. It's very hard to do a complete census and go count through every house and. And apartment house and so on. A lot of people don't answer the door, right? So it could be hollows up the hollows of eastern Kentucky or it could be in a big uh, Harlem uh, tenement or it could be any place where you would have trouble getting people to answer the door. And so it's important to have these other beans. and you can use that with the citizenship. Now, whether we should allocate on that basis, that will take a constitutional amendment because the founders never contemplated it. There was no, they just, they didn't have a way to think about this. It was not contemplated. And and as it is now, if we ask the citizenship question, it will tell you how many citizens there are, which I think is useful to know. Uh, And it will tell you, for example, that some people uh, in Congress represent 600,000 citizens and some represent 850,000 citizens, meaning that the people in the second district are underrepresented. Relatively underrepresented, they might be interested in knowing that.
2: Okay, well, the point is there are lots of big ideas to consider, and we've appreciated Bruce being here. Let me ask uh, Ed Meese to take that mic and just say a few words, if you will.
0: Well, Bruce has been a tremendous asset for this country in all the things that he's done uh, in his state as the uh, Secretary of State and the Chief Election Officer uh the fact that he worked in the reagan administration in various capacities one of the most important things he did was to be head of the office of planning and evaluation we actually had an office in the white house in those days which looked ahead to where we ought to be going and then to look at where we what we've done in the past and how how successful it's been and uh, learn how to do better planning for the future and that was a great accomplishment of yours for that to be uh, that an office and be so effective during that period of time it helped to, with a lot of the things Ronald Reagan was able to accomplish during that period. But then uh, your public service was not done when you're through with that and you uh, established the Discovery Institute, which really, uh, I believe, uh, along with the Hoover Institution at Stanford, is the primary uh, public policy research and educational institution on the West Coast which is another valuable service to all of us. So we thank you, and now we thank you for the book, and uh, we hope that all of us will show an appreciation by buying the book, uh, so that you can work on the next one. Thank you. Thank
3: you. Couldn't ask for a nicer and call me on that. Yeah.
2: Thank, you, thank so much. you, Bruce Chapman, a Reagan alum and a think tank president. Thank you all very much for being here today. Thank you for watching us online. We are now adjourned.